Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Everyday Law, where we discuss the everyday implications of all things legal. As always, the opinions that are voiced on this show are not the opinions of Howard Community College. And the legal discussions we have here are not intended to constitute legal advice. If you have an individual legal problem, you need to find an attorney who is competent in that area and have them address your concerns. With that said, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Alan Steinhorn of, coincidentally, the Laurel, Maryland law firm, Clark and Steinhorn, of which I'm a partner. Alan and I are college roommates going back a thousand years. Welcome to the show, Alan. Well, thank you. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. You and I chatted a little bit today about doing this in a slightly different manner than we have before, which is to say covering some topics that are not necessarily the traditional DWI law or marijuana law or personal injury law, but actually to discuss things that are in the news in large measure because of actions that have been taken by the new administration. And uh, I wondered if there was anything in that realm that interested you. Well, there's been a big change in our government since the administration changed. There are too many topics to talk about. I suppose one that is of great interest is the pardon power of the presidency. The pardon power of the presidency has been coming up. And why exactly is that? Well, the president recently pardoned Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was a sheriff in Arizona. And Judge Arpaio, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, was found to have uh, found to have been in contempt of court by a United States district court for violating the constitutional rights of citizens of Arizona. And what makes this so controversial is that President Trump, for his first pardon as president, used his pardon power to pardon a man who was convicted of violating people's constitutional rights. And in so doing, created controversy because he has undone something the judicial branch did. So in essence, he has nullified a judicial branch, that is a judge's finding, that Sheriff Arpaio was violating the constitutional rights of American citizens and was doing it after he had been told not to and after a court order was entered prohibiting what he was doing, and he continued to do it. And just to be clear, some of the things that he was found to have engaged in were were a systemic Uh, use of the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office to discriminate against people who, and this is his words, looked Hispanic. What Sheriff Arpaio was doing was instructing his police officers to pull over any driver who appeared to be Hispanic. The officer was then instructed to demand papers from the driver. If the driver did not have papers, the officer would arrest the driver until he could appear in court to determine whether he was here Uh, illegally? Was he an undocumented alien? And in those instances, there were um, instances of American citizens being incarcerated for days, and in one case, 13 days, without ever having committed a traffic violation, a violation of the law, and never being charged. So if you happened to look Hispanic in Sheriff Arpaio's county, uh, you were likely to be pulled over and put in jail. And that's simply not the way the Constitution was written to protect the rights of American citizens. We have chatted previously about when police officers can pull you over or cause you to be questioned. And that's the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution prohibits the United States Constitution prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. Is that more or less what he was violating with that? 
Well, yes. One of the great things about our country, and I, and I will tell you, being a first-generation American, that growing up, I was just so in awe of the way that the Constitution and our amendments were written. But one of the things that struck me, even as a small child, is that the police cannot bother me as long as I'm not doing anything wrong. And I remember being six, seven, eight years old and watching a television show called The Beverly Hillbillies. Now, my mother immigrated from Poland and was a Holocaust survivor. My father's father and mother immigrated from Austria. So I was taught a great love of this country. And one of the things I was told was that I could go anywhere I wanted. So as I watched The Beverly Hillbillies as a little child from my row house in Baltimore City near Pimlico Racetrack, I imagined myself going to Beverly Hills and walking around the mansions just on the sidewalks. And I remember thinking, the police can't keep me away. I can go anywhere I want that's not private property. And unless I'm doing something illegal, unless the police have a, a reasonable suspicion that I've broken the law, they can't bother me. And Sheriff Arpaio turned that constitutional protection on its head. And he did it on the basis of apparent, for lack of a better term, nat national origin. What he was doing was enforcing federal immigration laws. And by doing so, he took it upon himself to ask every person that his police officers encountered who looked Hispanic to produce papers. Now, um, Bob, can you show me your papers? You know, I, I left them in my station wagon. I'm very, I'm very unhappy to hear that. If you looked Hispanic, that would mean you would go to jail. I gotcha. If you were in Sheriff Ar Arpaio's county. In addition to his systemic uh, efforts to put Hispanic-looking people in jail, he also, I believe, was held in contempt of court in association with his prisoner practices. Is that, is that right? Well, I, I don't know exactly whether the order applied to the way he was treating prisoners. I suspect it did, but I'm not 100% sure. But sure. regardless, um, Sheriff Arpaio was treating his prisoners in a way that I believe the courts found to be cruel and unusual punishment. He was making them stay outside in 105-degree temperatures. He was making them wear pink clothing so as to humiliate them. He was giving them substandard food. He was giving them two meals a day. As in other prisons, you get three meals a day. And he referred to his prison as a concentration camp. Uh, people did not get medical care. There was one woman who gave birth while in prison. She was not given medical care and her child died. There were several other deaths in prison that were unexplained. Um, Sheriff Arpaio ran that prison like his own personal fiefdom, and the United States District Courts intervened and accused him of, the Justice Department accused him of violating prisoners' rights. Hearings were held. A fair trial was held. He was found guilty of that, and President Trump said, that's okay. I'm taking away your conviction. And what did President Trump say when he did it? Do you remember what he said to the audience? No, what did he say? He said, Judge Arpaio, he was just doing his job. Now, I don't mean to get too political, but if that's his job, then our Constitution doesn't mean anything. So in other words, it's okay to violate the Constitution's prohibitions against cruel and unusual punishment. It's okay to violate the Constitution, uh, which prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. And it's okay to single out an individual group of people for disparate treatment. And that's still okay? Well, with the pardon power that President Trump has and the fact that he is 
executed it by giving Judge, or excuse me, Sheriff uh, Arpaio a pardon, then yes, all of that conduct that you just described is okay in President Trump's view. A couple things that I'd like to focus on in deconstructing all of this. You mentioned that Judge Orpeo was held in contempt of court. What, what does contempt of court mean? Well, the courts have the ability to conduct hearings when there are allegations of wrongdoing. And in an instance where a governmental official is conducting a practice that some allege is unconstitutional, then if a matter is filed in court, and usually the American Civil Liberties Union or the Southern Poverty Law Center or one of the organizations that protects our civil rights will file a lawsuit in federal court in the jurisdiction where these offenses are occurring. After a hearing, a judge determines whether or not constitutional violations are being committed by these government officials. The United States District Court judge found that Sheriff Arpaio was violating the Constitution by stopping people for no good reason other than he thought they looked Hispanic for treating prisoners in an inhumane way. And they enter an order which says he must stop the conduct. What Judge Arpeo did was ignore that court order. Sheriff and, and, Arpeo, I mean. or Sh- Sheriff Arpeo. I think we both have called him Judge Arpeo. Um, a scary thought that would be. What Sheriff Arpeo did was to thumb his nose at the federal judges and to say, I'm not going to follow your orders. Now, if the courts cannot enforce the law, what have we? A lawless society. So one of the things that made this so controversial is that by pardoning Sheriff Arpaio, President Trump, in essence, is saying the federal courts cannot enforce the laws of our country. I see. And this is what's made it so controversial. Typically, pardons are given where someone perhaps has demonstrated a turnaround in their lives or perhaps there's been an unfair conviction. And the pardon power of both governors and presidents is to protect individuals who may have been wrongfully convicted or convicted of a crime that is no longer a crime. There have been some controversial pardons. Um, Some of you may remember that Bill Clinton pardoned a, a businessman named Mark Rich. And the only connection that the public could see to President Clinton and Mark Rich were large campaign contributions that Mark Rich made to the Clinton campaign. But his crimes were financial crimes. It was very difficult to understand why he should get a pardon. But a pardon is basically our country or our government's way of saying, we will allow our president to show mercy to those who are deserving of it. It is very hard to comprehend that rationale when one looks at Sheriff Arpaio's pardon. I understand that in the aftermath of the pardon of Sheriff Arpaio, that various organizations have filed lawsuits contesting the pardon in this instance. That's correct. What's, what's really interesting is that the pardon power of the president is, is unconditional and absolute. There is nothing in the Constitution that places any prohibitions on the president's ability to give a pardon. Ah, However, except in cases of impeachment, but go ahead. That's correct. However, the United States District court judge who issued the order that Judge Arpaio violated and who convicted him of contempt of court scheduled a hearing, and I'm not sure whether that hearing has been held yet, asking for both the government lawyers and Sheriff Arpaio's lawyers to explain why she would be required to uh, follow through on the pardon. It appears that the judge is having some problem, as some of the rest of the legal community is, with the issuance of a pardon for someone who has not demonstrated even remorse or acceptance of responsibility for what he did. So 
in essence, the problem is that there are three co-equal branches of government, the executive branch, the Congress, and the courts. And if you allow the president to completely undermine the ability of the courts to do their job, that is a constitutional conflict under the 14th Amendment. I think perhaps the word constitutional crisis is too strong a word, but the president of the United States is exercising his power in a way that seems to be seeking to diminish the powers of the other branches of government. Uh, we had this argument under President Obama when Congress could not seem to pass any laws, particularly about immigration, and the president took it upon himself to issue an executive order uh, such as the DREAM Act for the DREAMers because Congress did not enact legislation. Um, president Trump is likewise using executive orders to accomplish things that he's unable to accomplish through Congress. And also it appears that he is using his executive orders to undo most of what President Obama did, but that would be an entire program for us to get into that topic. So what is your prediction on the likelihood that this pardon of Sheriff Arpaio will stand up? I suspect it will stand up. Um, it would be a little bit more of a difficult question if Sheriff Arpaio said, well, I gave Donald Trump a million dollars and I got the pardon. I don't know whether the Supreme Court, where ultimately the final decision on the law would be made, would see that as appropriate exercise of the president's pardon power. On the other hand, our Constitution places no restriction on the pardon power, and I suspect that a court might rule that the only uh, remedy would be impeachment of the president for misusing the pardon power. Let's go in that direction just a little bit because the pardon power also seems to be in the news a good deal because of Robert Mueller's Russia-related investigation of the Trump campaign. That is an absolutely fascinating topic to explore, and the question is, would President Trump be committing any kind of crime if he were to pardon the individuals in his administration and who worked on his campaign who were found to have violated law pertaining to collusion with Russia or other crimes that were discovered during the special counsel's investigation of the collusion with Russia issue? So that kind of gets into, again, the theoretically unlimited pardon power, which is to say, if they're investigating the president and his campaign, and it takes them in various directions, including in the direction of obstruction of justice, if he's allowed to pardon everybody, doesn't that obstruct justice? That's how I interpret it. I think that if President Trump were to pardon people so that they would not be in jeopardy of a criminal conviction in jail time, which in turn would make it less likely that they would, and I think the expression would be, flip on okay. him. That is to offer testimony against President Trump, should there be evidence that they were aware of that would show President Trump committed a crime. But usually prosecutors try and get convictions of lower level people in their quest to obtain evidence against the people above them. So if in fact, say, uh, Michael Flynn had communications with the ambassador to Russia and in those communications stated that President Trump would be uh, willing to um, forgive the sanctions that were uh, enacted by President Obama in retaliation for the uh, Russia's interference with our election. If uh, Michael Flynn were told by President Trump, go tell the Russian ambassador that we will undo the sanctions in exchange for some other help that we want. 
Well, that would be a violation of the Logan Act, which is I don't believe ever been used. But the Logan Act is a an act of law that says that private citizens cannot negotiate with foreign governments. But if President Trump had somehow colluded with Russia, perhaps Michael Flynn was giving the Russians information as to what states to target their propaganda or their you're, efforts. You're during the election During cycle. the election cycle. If President Trump had told Michael Flynn to do that, and Michael Flynn were then being investigated by the uh, Mueller inquiry, and perhaps if there were uh, audio tapes of conversations he had with the Russian ambassador in which those audio tapes would sustain enough evidence of a crime, the goal of the prosecutor would be to get Mr. Flynn, wary of a conviction, and then to, for an exchange of immunity, testify against those ahead of him, those above him. That would be President Trump. If President Trump were to pardon Mr. Flynn, there would be no incentive for Mr. Flynn to cooperate with the prosecutors, and arguably that would be an act that obstructs justice. The only remedy, I believe, though, would be to impeach the president. Okay. So let's talk a little bit, when we talk about the pardon power, it's a constitu- Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, which does a host of different things. It allows the president to employ ambassadors and engage in treaties, and he's the commander-in-chief, but it also talks about reprieves and pardons, except in cases of impeachment. The real question in my mind is, does that mean all crimes? If I'm charged with a municipal infraction in Columbia, Maryland, can he pardon me for that? Well, this has created a very – your question leads to a very fascinating dynamic with the attorney general for the state of New York. The presidential pardon power only applies to federal offenses. Recently, there have been news reports that the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, has been coordinating his investigation with the New York attorney general. Is it Schneiderman? Attorney General Schneiderman. I believe it is. And Mr. Schneiderman, apparently, if the news reports are correct, has been investigating Mr. Trump, Mr. Manafort, and other individuals in New York State for alleged financial crimes. If Mr. Mueller wants to avoid the possibility that President Trump will try and grant pardons to those he is investigating, which would then prevent them from flipping on President Trump if they had evidence of President Trump's crimes. Then if the state attorney general for the state of New York has very similar criminal statutes that the state of New York has enacted, then these individuals could be enacted under New York state law for similar crimes, and the presidential pardon power could not reach them, and they would be facing perhaps a long prison term, and that might be something that would persuade them to perhaps testify against others. So what you're saying is that the president can let you off the hook for federal crimes, but he can't get you off the hook for state crimes. That's correct. And a lot of the financial crimes that Mr. Mueller is investigating appear to have similar statutes in New York that could be prosecuted under New York state law. And to be clear, those two could be pardoned, but they'd have to be pardoned by the governor of the state of New York, correct? That's correct. I do not believe the governor for the state of New York has any incentive to issue pardons the way perhaps our president would. So let me ask you this question. Why doesn't President Trump preemptively pardon everybody under the sun who's touched this investigation in any way and thus nip in the bud the Mueller investigation and kind of slow down whatever's going on in New York? Because I presume the resources available to the Mueller investigation are much greater than those that would be at the disposal of the attorney general of the state of New York. Well, that's correct. But the short answer to your question is politics. There are political considerations that even President Trump must acknowledge. He has done things that are politically unpopular and that could harm him politically. Even um, pardoning Sheriff Arpaio 
can be argued to be something not in President Trump's self-interest. However, most of his base approve of that pardon. Um, the people that don't approve of President Trump don't approve of that pardon. But the political reality is that if he were to pardon these folks before the investigation was complete, it would suggest that they are guilty of criminal wrongdoing. And since President Trump has said that this entire investigation is a hoax, that the claim that any of his uh, administration officials or really any of his campaign people met with any Russians whatsoever, that that is a hoax. It never happened. And if he were to pardon people for doing things that he said never happened, politically, it would affect his uh, standing with the public's view. So let's pivot a little bit. And you kind of touched on it earlier in our discussion. We were talking about the the DACA law, the, the Dreamers thing, the deferred action on childhood. Evidently, that was a byproduct of the Obama administration when Congress couldn't do anything to help, you know, in essence, kids. I mean, you could be a baby, you could be a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old. Your parents come into the country illegally and bring you, and you live your entire life and get all your schooling and your entire life experiences in the United States. And you're a productive citizen here. And in essence, Obama tried to protect you, at least for some time. And as I understand it, recent actions by the Trump administration are an effort to remove that protection. I strongly disagree with Attorney General Sessions' position on this topic. When he announced that the administration, the Trump administration, would no longer enforce the DACA rules, he said that it was an unconstitutional act by the president. By President Obama. By President not, Obama. Not by President Thank Trump. you. Thank yeah. you for making that more clear. Now, no court has ruled DACA to be unconstitutional. And President Obama did not change the law. What President Obama did is he instructed his Justice Department to not prosecute the children that are called dreamers. And throughout history, presidents have had the right to make decisions as to who would be prosecuted. It's prosecutorial priorities that are enforced. So since we cannot possibly deport all 11, 12 million undocumented uh, aliens in our country, we have to focus our resources on those that are causing our country the most harm and jeopardy. That would be criminals. That would be gang members. That would be people that pose a threat to us here in, the, in, in America. So if you're going to deport people, let's use our resources to deport the dangerous, harmful people. And all President Obama did is he signed an executive order that said, the dreamers are the last people that I want you to be spending our resources on to uh, deport. The statistics show that the dreamers are probably more successful and more productive in our country than native-born Americans. And secondly, how do you prosecute someone? How do you punish someone who did nothing wrong? If you're a 12-month-old baby, how can you do something wrong when your parents bring you to this country? You have no memory of any other country. If we deport you to Mexico, what are we doing? We're putting you in the middle of a town where you know no, no one, you have no connection. Many of these children don't even speak Spanish. So to be clear, President Obama had the capability under an executive order to do this in the first place. And in a similar vein, uh, President Trump has the ability to countermand that, to, to say this is no longer the case. I agree. He does have the power to do that. There's one thing that's really troubling about him doing this, though. When President Obama announced that he would be creating a program for the Dreamer children, he asked them to register, and they would be given two-year work permits so that they could work in the United States even though they did not have proper paperwork to show they were born here. And many of these children who are now adults 
came out of the woodwork and gave their identities and addresses to the United States government. There seems something fundamentally unfair about then prosecuting people who came forward only because the government promised they would protect them. Then after they come forward, the government goes after them. I have a real problem with that, just, I guess, morally as to whether or not our country should be doing something like that. And yet, ironically, it sounds like the president has sort of given mixed signals on what his intentions are. My understanding is that he kind of invoked a 180-day rule and said, we'll give it to Congress to do something, and if they don't do something, I will. And I was puzzled by that. President Trump said that the Dreamers could be deported. And then within a day or two, he came out publicly and said, uh, if Congress doesn't fix this, I will revisit it. Well, I don't want to comment on his negotiating skills, but if the purpose of rescinding the DACA Act was to get Congress to act, if you're telling Congress that you're going to act if they don't, you've taken away all your leverage in negotiating with Congress. The important thing is that President Trump made a decision that he completely reversed a day later, making all of us wonder if he truly understood the consequences of what he was doing initially. And that is the consequence of making 800,000 young people who have never known any other country but America wake up every morning or go to sleep every night wondering, will I wake up in the morning in my bed or will I be woken at three or four in the morning by deportation police? It's an amazingly scary situation for an awful lot of people who I guess he doesn't think are Americans, but I certainly do. It's a very difficult decision, circumstance. One thing I will add to this conversation, not everything in life is a black or white decision. There are gray areas where you can't really determine an easy answer. This one has no easy answer. The conflict is we have laws in our country, and if we are a country of laws, the laws must be enforced. But this situation causes us, by enforcing the law, to give a very unjust outcome to these children who were brought here as infants and small children. I couldn't help when you were talking earlier and discussing prosecutorial discretion of think, and it may be a bad analogy, but marijuana laws, that basically the Obama administration made a decision when a series of states legalized marijuana that they were not going to prosecute people who were running marijuana shops or smoking marijuana or anything else. And that's an example of prosecutorial discretion that has allowed those industries to flourish in Washington and Colorado and now Massachusetts and Alaska and Maine and a host of different places. And I just sort of wonder where you think that that's going to be going under President Trump, because I know Jeff Sessions is not a big marijuana enthusiast. No, in fact, uh, Attorney General Sessions has publicly announced that he would be going after states and their laws. Uh, President Trump, during the campaign, said he would not. And I'll simply point out, we've tried this once before. <clears throat> it was called prohibition, and most college students are too young to remember. In fact, I'm too old. I, I don't remember because it didn't happen in my lifetime. But alcohol used to be illegal, and it was outlawed in the 1920s. And that was an epic failure that has been fairly similar to the marijuana situation. So I don't believe that Attorney General Sessions can plausibly effectuate the, his desire to ra eradicate marijuana from every state in our union. I mean, it does make me wonder. I know that Colorado and Washington State have derived 
hundreds of millions of dollars from taxes on legal marijuana. And I, As has California from their medical marijuana, although they've recently passed uh, a law legalizing it for recreational use. And as far as I can tell, Bob, and maybe your listeners can help me out by contacting us, I don't believe the sky has fallen. These laws have been on the books in these states for many, many years. And what I read is that opiate addiction goes down in those states. Crime goes down in those states. And to me, most importantly, the government of that state is getting millions and millions of dollars in tax revenue and not the Mexican drug cartels or other organized crime uh, units. Well, let's be optimistic on these and all such topics. I'd like to thank you very much for appearing today. And I'm hopeful we'll have you back on the show. Well, thank you. I did bring with me my 1880s pocket watch as we think about the 21st century and the changes in society. I suggested to you perhaps that we do a program one time called Smartphones, Drones, and the Founding Fathers. In other words, the Founding Fathers hadn't anticipated all of these developments? Well, before the show started, you told me they had. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yes, the, the Constitution is thought to be a living and breathing uh, um, document and that it changes with time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, when I was born in 1955, if you would have told me that I would have a computer in my pocket that was greater than the computer that sent the spacecraft to the moon, I would have thought you were crazy. On that note, thank you very much, Alan. This has been Everyday Law.